0: Thank you, worship team. You can be seated here tonight. But if you are a kid ages three through fifth grade, we got a whole crew that's ready to take you outside in this beautiful weather uh, and play and have fun. Everybody else, thank you for being here. It is uh, good to be here with you. If you're here online, it's good to be with you as well in spirit. Um, But we, if you have your Bibles tonight, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 7. So you can turn to Isaiah chapter 7. And if you're taking notes tonight, the title is simply The Fear Factory. The Fear Factory. But we launched this series that's entitled The Moral Dilemma three weeks ago now. And it was two weeks ago that Pastor Fred preached that powerful sermon that tied the Good Samaritan to Second Timothy 1.7, which says, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and of self-control. And then last weekend, we dug into Isaiah 30, looking at this narrative in the history of Judah, where where Isaiah is presenting King Ahaz with a choice. He's he's like, you can choose to trust the nations, or you can choose to trust God. And this weekend, I want to rewind in that history and in the book of Isaiah to a passage that we referenced only briefly last weekend. And uh, I don't necessarily have a life verse. Uh, I've never, like, felt that impressed upon my life, but there are definitely verses that will carry me through seasons. I don't know if anybody feels me on that. There are verses where where I'll just keep coming back to it for like a year because of what our family's going through or what's happening in my life. And I know for us on the roller coaster we've been on for the past couple years, there's a verse in Isaiah 7 that, that I turn to again and again. It's not deep, it's not profound, and yet it is. And what it says simply is, Tell him to stop worrying. Tell him to stop worrying. It's a remix of the most common command in Scripture. And the most common command in Scripture is not about sex, power, or money. The most common command in Scripture is don't be afraid. Don't fear. The Bible has a lot to say about fear. And if we dug into fear tonight, it's an entire sermon and lesson in and of itself. Because fear in and of itself is, is often involuntary. It's the response to a specific perceived threat, be it valid or not. There's thousands of diagnosed phobias, some that are serious, some you would laugh at. And yet fear is something we, we feel in our brain. And, and when it's proper, and it can save our lives. Fear in and of itself can be a very good thing. But then there's worry. Worry is like fear's distant cousin. <laughs> it's manufactured fear. Because while fear is primarily an involuntary response in the brain, fear is a, or excuse me, worry is a choice. Worry is a, a fear factory that manufactures new reasons to fear, many of which probably will never happen. In his book *The Gift of Fear*, Gavin De Becker says to worry oneself is a form of self-harassment. Worry is the fear we manufacture. And just looking at my own life, (laughs) there are silly and foolish fears that I feel. Like, I don't know if anybody can relate to this, but after I've checked out at Walmart, I got that giant cart with me. When I walk towards that metal detector, there's always something in the back of my head. Knowing I haven't stolen a thing, I didn't even buy a DVD because those used to set them off all the time, right? I just fear that that's going to go off. It's silly. It's foolish. It's weird. But there's also legitimate concerns in my life that sometimes spark worry sweating the results of a medical test or the results of an upcoming surgery. Those are valid concerns that can sometimes spark worry. And see, in Isaiah 7, which we're about to read, there are seemingly serious reasons to fire up that fear factory and generate some worry. And we'll get to that in a second. But again, the words of God through Isaiah to King Ahaz are, tell him to stop worrying. And again, this is Isaiah speaking to the same King Ahaz that we referenced last weekend when we looked at Isaiah 30. And he had made this foolish alliance with the Assyrians. But here we see, this is where Isaiah is encouraging him. He's saying, look, don't put your trust in this alliance. Don't pursue this alliance with Assyria. It's gonna be a mess. Put your trust in God. I'm gonna read chapter seven, verse one through verse nine. Says in Isaiah seven, verse one, it says, when Ahaz, the son of Jotham, And grandson of Uzziah was king of Judah. King Rezin of Syria and King Pekah, son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, set out to attack Jerusalem. However, they were unable to carry out their plan. It says the news had come to the royal court of Judah. Syria is allied with Israel against us. So the hearts of the king and his people trembled with fear like trees shaking in a storm. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, take your son. Shear-Jashub, and go to meet King Ahaz. You will find him at the end of the aqueduct that feeds water into the upper pool, near the road leading to the field where cloth is washed. Tell him to stop worrying. Tell him he doesn't need to fear the fierce anger of those two burned-out embers, King Rezin of Syria and Pekah, son of Ramaliah. Yes, the kings of Syria and Israel are plotting against him, saying, we will attack Judah and capture it for ourselves. Then we will install the son of Tabeel as Judah's king. But this is what the sovereign Lord says. This invasion will never happen. It'll never take place. For Syria is no stronger than its capital, Damascus, and Damascus is no stronger than its king, Rezin. As for Israel, within 65 years, it will be crushed and completely destroyed. Israel is no stronger than its capital, Samaria, and Samaria is no stronger than its king, Pekah, son of Ramalia. Unless your faith is firm... I cannot make you stand firm. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray, God, that our faith would stand firm, our hope would stand firm, (laughs) and our love would be firm in this season in our nation that can be so shook, can be so divided. God, I pray that we would stand firm in unity, continuing in this series tonight, pursuing your truth. God, I thank you that you're here. So speak to each one of us, whether we're here physically or online. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have heard of Erwin McManus? He's a, a pastor on the West Coast. He's probably one of my favorite communicators because his, the way his brain works is just next level. In terms of illustrations, it makes my illustrations look like I'm working with crayons or something. But uh, it came to no surprise to me when I learned that a, a cable news network had reached out to him some time ago to come in and, and, and talk about Immigration. Because I could I could listen to this guy talk about his love for mayonnaise for like an hour. So it, it doesn't surprise me that like, hey, come in and, and talk with our host. Now I don't know if like the intern, when they booked him, didn't ask the right questions, but he, he shows up for the interview. And the host turns to him and she's like, okay, what's your stance on immigration? And so he tells her his stance on immigration, and her response was, that's too holistic. We need you to choose a side. And when he said, no. That's my opinion on immigration. The (laughs) the interview got canned like that. Now, I know what network it was, but I don't share what network it was because then half of us will be like, that's why I don't watch that mess. But every news network does this. News in our day, we need a crisis of the day where we're forced to take sides. If we can't find one, (laughs) we'll make one. And if there's a small one, they'll make it a big one because Fear sells. Fear sells. That's why so much of the media functions as a stimulus for worry. They want us to fire up those proverbial fear factories and manufacture more and more. Where the Bible would tell us, tell him to stop worrying, tell her she doesn't have a reason to fear, so much of politics and the news tells us, hey, start worrying. Fire up that fear factory because this is something you should fear. And I don't think this is... News to most of us. I think most of us are aware that the media makes money off of division. You watch sports networks. Like, they're just debating things back and forth. People have a different take, and they debate it. But maybe you ask, like, why the appeal to fear? Can't they appeal to, like, my joy, right? Can't you appeal to my happiness? Why the appeal to fear, and why is it so stinking effective? And the reason is fear energizes, not just metaphorically. Like, literally, the science attests to this. We talked about a month ago in the series opener about the parts of the brain and their functions, and we talked about how the amygdala, right, at the base of the brain is where some of our our unconscious responses and just triggered responses happen, be it bias or fear. And what's wild is when you study the fear response, the amygdala just lights up like a Christmas tree. And when an emotion lights up our brain like this, there's this release of chemicals, right? When you feel fear, you feel that trigger of fear, in your chest, you get those goosebumps, you get a dopamine reward in your brain. Dopamine and serotonin is released. So it sounds absurd, but scientifically speaking, fear feels good. From politicians to advertisers, our culture realizes this that, that fear can energize the masses. And one result of living in a culture like this, and why I share this tonight, is if we aren't mindful as we consume content in in the name of staying informed, that can become synonymous if we're not careful with staying worried. And why is this a big deal? We didn't go to the Bible yet. There was an article in, in Time magazine. Yeah, Time. Where it looked at the effect Of worry on our bodies, stress on our bodies, and just looked at the fact that worry and stress is taking years off of our life. We are worrying ourselves to death. And when it comes to health and healthy eating, we'll focus on what we're putting in our bodies. But when it comes to having healthy minds in our culture, we have to focus on what are we feeding ourselves in terms of content, programming. There's an old axiom from the days of computer programming, garbage in, garbage out, just speaks to this idea that faulty data is gonna give you faulty results. And some of us, we've got an input problem. What are we feeding ourselves? How much of my day-to-day stress or worry or angst is just because of the news I've been getting from Twitter or from the channel I've been watching? How much of it is an input problem? Because if it's not balanced with a steady diet of God's word, staying in the know can produce unstable, worried believers ones that no longer reflect the hope we have in Christ. See, when our focus shifts from Christ's kingdom and we become foot soldiers in the proverbial culture war where both sides always feel like the other side is taking ground and and the sky is falling, we turn into chicken littles rather than little Christs, which is what Christians means. We need to heed again and again the words in Isaiah 7-6. Tell him to stop worrying. Tell him he doesn't need to fear. You know, I let those words wash over me again and again in the past years because I've got a choice, like you have a choice, like King Ahaz had a choice. In those moments where we feel fear, we have a choice. We can operate like Chicken Little or Little Christ and place our hope in Christ. But in in meditating on on these words, I'm mindful of two things, two points of clarification I want to make tonight as we talk about worry and this command to stop worrying and and don't worry. And the first is worry and anxiety. Because worry is a noun, but it's also a verb. Worry is something you do actively. Again, you are manufacturing fears. Anxiety is more of a noun, It's, it's a feeling. And in life, you're gonna feel many, many things. And sometimes to feel that, that's not sinful at all. But fear, like fear, anxiety presents us with a choice. What will we do with it? 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. We're being told, hey, take your worry, take your anxiety, and lay them at the foot of Jesus. But so often we can take this and run with it to where faith is supposed to be able to turn off anxiety like flipping a switch. So I want to clarify what we're talking about when we hear this command, hey, stop worrying. Because, again, worry happens in our thoughts For some of us, anxiety happens in our body. For some, anxiety is a domineering, bordering on permanent fixture. Clinical anxiety is a matter of of the brain. PTSD, a matter of the brain, as are so many other issues with mental health. And I walked down this rabbit trail to say, for, for some of us with clinically diagnosed anxiety, it doesn't seem to come with an off switch. And the enemy would love for you to go through life feeling defeated. But victory is found in the way you live with it, and lean into God with it. Like like Steph lives with chronic pain and a degenerative condition, right? It's apples and oranges when talking about that and mental health. But do we pray for healing? Yes, absolutely. Do we believe God can do it? Yes, absolutely. But if God doesn't heal her on a cellular level, that doesn't mean she's walking in defeat, right? Victory is how she lives with it and leans into God in the midst of it. And it's the same and very similar with clinical anxiety. So to be clear, why we went down that rabbit trail, know that when I use the word worry tonight and we reflect on this command not to worry, I'm speaking about day-to-day general worry that we wrestle with in our thoughts. So God is speaking to specifically in this passage with the prophet Isaiah and King Ahaz. To misunderstand worry is synonymous with anxiety because so seeds of guilt and shame, I'm not doing that. But there's a second necessary point of clarification which really applies to this entire series, which is worry versus concern. See, God doesn't tell King Ahaz, tell him not to concern himself with. He says, don't worry. And there's a big difference. Isaiah 7 says that Ahaz was trembling with fear like trees shaking in a storm. And it's because a legitimate storm was brewing. As we read here, Syria and Israel were attacking Judah and looking to replace him on the throne with some guy named Tabeel's son. There was plenty to be concerned about, just as there will be plenty things in your life that will concern you, and there will be plenty of things in my life that will concern me. And this concern and the care that can come from it can be good for me and the people around me when it sparks action. Matter of fact, I tell you, concern is a great thing when it's directed at the right things, kept from extremes, and causes us to act. Concern is a good thing when it's directed at the right things, kept from extremes, and causes us to act. And in our nation, just as there was in Judah when Isaiah was prophesying, there sure are some things when we look around that concern us and should concern us. But the thing is, over time, it can just become numbing. But the answer is never, I'm gonna detach myself from what's happening in the world and just concern myself with me from now on. Again, God's people are instructed in Scripture to do justice. We're instructed in Scripture to love our neighbor and work for the good of where God has placed us. And this political season is frustrating at times, and it's often concerning. But again, that concern can be a good thing when it's directed at the right things, kept from extremes, and causes us to act. Acting politically, as we've said again and again in this series, is what helps us do justice and love our neighbor, both practically and systemically. That's why it's important tonight that we don't take don't worry as synonymous with, well, I'm not gonna worry about it. Big difference between the two. For instance, regarding poverty in Proverbs 29 7, it says, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. This verse implies that a lack of concern can be plain wicked concern should fuel the compassion with which we love others well. Concerns should fuel our convictions where we take our stand both politically and personally. And you will take a stand. The passage we read to verse nine ended with that thought, if you don't stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Trust in God is not a passive endeavor. Trusting in God means that you're gonna walk in faith and when you need to take a stand on convictions based on the truth of God's word. And one of these powerful truths in this season is in Psalm 47, verse 8. Psalm 47, verse 8 says that God reigns above the nations, sitting on his holy throne. In an unsure time for our culture, our hope is sure Because God's throne isn't up for re-election every four years, like Anthony was talking about. It's not subject to a limit of terms. It's not subject to checks or balances. God reigns in sovereignty. He's almighty. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So our hope doesn't change. But God is on the throne. This is a, a powerful, pivotal truth that should drive away worry. But I share it because sometimes I hear people say, well, God is on the throne as an escapist shrug of the shoulders that says, I'm not going to worry about that or show concern because God's got it. But that's a cop-out. God is on the throne. Man, that should spark praise like that amazing praise we just had at the beginning of this service. But God is on the throne should never spark passivity. We're called to be his hands and feet, the body of Christ, right? Loving the world, he died to save. It doesn't give us permission to sit back and kick our feet up. But I share all this because the political sphere loves to take our legitimate concerns and marry them to fear and marry it to worry, this fear factory. But faith means tying our concerns first and foremost to who God is. And when you know who God is, right, peace flows from that and drowns out all fear. But now that we've had those two points of clarification, I want to look at the two conclusions of the matter when it comes to Isaiah and his episode with King Ahaz. One involves a promised sign and the other a proper fear. But first, a promised sign. Because immediately after the passage we opened with where God encourages King Ahaz to trust in him, he asks him, he tells Isaiah, tell King Ahaz to ask me for a sign. And King Ahaz refuses under this guise of false humility. He points to the Torah where it says, don't test God. What that's speaking to is don't be, basically don't be a fool. Don't rebel and test God's patience. It's not talking about don't stand on God's promises and test God's promises. And it made me think, as I've been reading through the Gospels this week, there's a big difference between piety and faith, right? The demons show Jesus' reverence and piety, but there's a big difference between piety and what God wants from us, which is obedience. God wanted Ahaz's trusting obedience, but he, he doesn't step in obedience under this mask of piety, So Isaiah, you can read it, it's right there in chapter 7. It's like in the words, you can tell, he's like, you're not just trying God's patience. At this point, you're trying my patience. (laughs) And he says, look, God is going to show you a sign anyways, just to prove you should have trusted him. And it says in Isaiah 7, 14, a virgin will conceive a child and she will give birth to a son and name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now it's interesting, you study this Hebrew text, the Hebrew word used here is ambiguous and can mean a virgin, or in that culture could mean a maiden, like a a young lady who was of age but not married and sexually active. For King Ahaz, though, the significance was that there would be a child born, many assumed Isaiah's own child, and before he matured of age, these two kingdoms that they were fearing were going to be deserted. These kingdoms that King Ahaz was so scared of that it would drive him to Assyria instead of God, they were going to be deserted anyways. But it was a twofold sign. And I love that the Holy Spirit prompting Isaiah to prophesy this and to put it down in text, he uses this Hebrew word because it provides for everyone who would read Isaiah later the same message, that God is with you. See, God is not some force, or or principle. God is a person, and in his personhood, he wants to be present with us. You see it in the Old Testament. You see it in the Garden of Eden. You see it in the tabernacle, in the temple, and we see it in the lives of Old Testament characters again and again. But it's not just some metaphor either, right? It becomes a secondary sign in Isaiah 7 for all of humanity because Jesus took on flesh, born of a virgin, Emmanuel, God with us, And God isn't just alongside of us or with us anymore. The Holy Spirit is in us. God with us is one of the most profound truths in all of Scripture. So then you read this text and you're like, how could King Ahaz (laughs) turn to such an evil enemy like Assyria in light of all of this? But this isn't the only time that people in history pivoted to turn power over to a questionable recipient because of worry and all the fear it produced. You I can remember the last election cycle, reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer's sermon preached on January 15th, 1933. It was between the world wars. And World War I ended with the Treaty of Versailles. Maybe you're familiar, maybe you're not, but it was so punitive. It was so punishing that in Germany, the market crashed, some six million people lost their jobs, and there was this rising extremism. It put Germany in such a desperate position, it became fertile ground for manufacturing fear and and, and stirring up fear in the rise of the Nazi party. In this setting, it was where Bonhoeffer preached the sermon, overcoming fear. And he said the following. So let's say there is a ship on the high sea having a fierce struggle with the waves. The storm is blowing harder by the minute. The boat is small, tossed about like a toy. The sky is dark. The sailor's strength is failing. Then one of them is gripped by... Whom? What? He cannot tell himself, but someone is there in the boat who wasn't there before. Suddenly he can no longer see or hear anything, can no longer row. A wave overwhelms him, and in final desperation he shrieks, stranger in this boat, who are you? And the other answers, is, I am fear. All hope is lost. Fear is in the boat. Fear is in the boat in Germany, in our own lives, and in the nave of this church. Naked fear of an hour from now or tomorrow or the day after. And if I, I share this because if we're honest, there are some traces of fear in the nave of this church today. Relevant concerns for the future. Other legitimate concerns that America will repeat the sins of its past. But too often, we need to remind ourselves, we need to remind the people here, we need to remind our culture fueled by fear, who is with them in the boat. And it's not just fear, it's Jesus, the one whose words calm storms. And I love that in Mark's gospel account of the calming of the storm, at the end of that passage, the disciples, it says, now they were more afraid than ever (laughs) and said to each other, who is this? Fear of the winds and the waves was eclipsed by this fear of Jesus, the proper fear of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And it speaks to the second conclusion of Isaiah in this King Ahaz episode, which is a proper fear. We see King Ahaz, his rejection of Isaiah's message is almost immediate. He chooses to place his trust in Assyria instead of God. And it's his fear of Assyria's power, right? They were so powerful. He's thinking, hey, at least if I ally myself with them and build an alliance, they're so powerful, I'm safe with them. Because in his mind, he's choosing the, the best uh, or the better of two evils, right? Syria and Israel over here or Assyria over here. But there was a third choice he ignored, which was God's instructions. The fears of his flesh and the worries he had eclipsed the appropriate fear of God. Now, I'm sure everyone in Judah in that day with these imminent threats, had a theory about what was going on as well as what should be done. You had two evils, right? Syria and Israel over here, Assyria on the other. It was a dilemma without a clear answer. And no doubt there were conspiracies and fear and theories of what could happen in each direction. If we give ourselves to Israel and Syria, they're gonna come for our freedom. If we give ourselves to Assyria, they're gonna come for our families. People fearing their way of life being torn apart if the nation went one way or the other. I mean, if social media existed then, right, no doubt it would have looked similar to ours over these months where fear and conspiracies are thrown every direction. But I love that God comes to Isaiah with specific instructions for him because God doesn't just care about the nations. He cares about you. And applicable, I believe it's applicable to the entire remnant of Israel that had faith then and any people that have faith in God in a tumultuous time in any nation. And it reads in Isaiah 8, Verses 11 through 14 is what I'm going to read. It says, the Lord has given me a strong warning not to think like everyone else does. He said, don't call everything a conspiracy like they do and don't live in dread of what frightens them. Make the Lord of heaven's armies holy in your life. He is the one you should fear. He is the one who should make you tremble and he will keep you safe. This reads like a passage out of Pastor Fred's series, Apoliticos, had to think about how to say it for a second. The series on the fear of God. That there's a proper fear of God that puts everything else in its proper place, including other fears and worries. But you see, where King Ahaz misplaced his fear, we see his successor, his son Hezekiah, didn't make the same mistake. And see, what I love about the Bible is when you just keep reading it, keep digging, keep messing around in there, you just see things you didn't see before. Isaiah 7 that we read earlier mentions the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. And you're like, why is that detail even in there? (laughs) But as the place, that was the place where Isaiah stood to approach King Ahaz, to to prophesy from. And this isn't the last time we see it in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 36, verse 2, 34 years later, the commander of the Syrian army comes to basically collect on the terrible agreement that King Ahaz had made with Assyria. He orders Judah to surrender. He tells them a dozen reasons why they should have no faith in God, why they should worry and fire up that proverbial fear factory. And where does he stand as he does this? The same aqueduct Isaiah had met with Hezekiah's father saying, hey, tell him to stop worrying. Tell him there's nothing to fear. And unlike King Ahaz, his son, King Hezekiah, doesn't succumb to anxiety and worry. And look, this is a whole other sermon for another time, but I love the steps they take in that moment when fear is assaulting them, when the enemy tries to sow seeds of worry. Two quick steps. First, they don't say a word back. I love, it says in verse 21, the king commanded, don't answer him. Look, thoughts of fear are going to come in your life. We don't have to spark a conversation. Worries may come, but we don't have to let it make a home. And then secondly, it says King Hezekiah tore his robes, went into the temple into God's presence and prayed, and he encouraged everybody else to do the same. Was he feeling fear? No doubt, but he takes it to God in prayer. And this prompts Isaiah to come and echo the words he spoke to Ahaz, words we hear hundreds of times in Scripture in various forms, do not be afraid. If I could have the worship team come up, it's the same words we hear the, the angel Gabriel say to Mary when he says, you're going you're to bear Emmanuel. You're going to bear Jesus. It's the same words we hear the angels tell the shepherds when Jesus was born. And, man, I've been thinking about how this Christmas is going to hit different. The, the hope of Jesus coming in the year we've just had, enduring COVID, enduring losses, the tumultuous election. We're going to need a reminder of why we don't succumb to worry and fear, but we have hope in every season. May we cling to the same sign and promise King Ahaz received that gets echoed at Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. My favorite Christmas song by far, my favorite Christmas hymn is "O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, because it reminds me in every season, even seasons of pain, chronic pain, where you're just crying out for an answer. You're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting. That Jesus is coming and God is with us. Emmanuel, God with us. That's the perspective that that is written from, 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 from ancient Israel and Judah, crying out for the promised Messiah. But for us, Jesus has come and Jesus is coming again and being with us and having gone with us all the way to the tomb he's gonna eventually take us with him and in a way one day God with us is gonna graduate to us with God in heaven. Revelations 21 speaks to this when it says look God's home is now among his people he will live with them and they will be his people God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. What a hope we have in Jesus. And my hope is that the witness of this church and the church in this season isn't one of the sky falling, but that one day the sky is going to open up and Christ is coming again for his people. Because one is fuel for fear and worry. The other is fuel for our faith and our worship. You see, on November 3rd, the race for the White House will be over. But our race is barely beginning. Our race continues. There have been almost 50 races for the White House. There's been hundreds of platforms. None of them have crippled the church. None of them have built Christendom either. Should we be concerned about who sits in the Oval Office? Absolutely, vote accordingly. But we can't let the lead up to the election or the aftermath of the election, let worry manufacture fear. Let those concerns manufacture prayer and prayerful action. Look, fear and pessimism make no sense when victory is promised. November 3rd, there's going to be a loss. But we don't hope in the victory of of the party of the elephant or the party of the donkey. We hope in the lion and the lamb who's eternally on the throne. And worship powerfully reminds us of this as we open with that that God is on the throne, but hey, God is also with us. God is infinite, but God also wants to be intimate right? It says in James that when we draw near to Him, He draws near to us. So, man, I know there's so many concerns in our lives right now. For some of us, the least of them is politics. (laughs) But I pray that we could close in worship tonight setting our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith that kicks out fear, kicks out worry, God, I know there's legitimate fears in our lives and concerns, God, but I pray that worry would not make a home. (laughs) We wouldn't be people that manufacture more fear, but God, that we would be able to set our eyes on you and in a way to manufacture faith, walking in faith, standing on truth, being people of conviction and ultimately people of hope. But we set our eyes on you. If we could stand here tonight, we're gonna close in worship together.